Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, Return to Sender. Hurricanes may be scooping up ocean microplastic and blowing significant amounts of it back onto land. I was pretty shocked. I was like, is this right? This seems like way too much. But that's what we found. And you scratch my beak, I'll scratch yours. Exploring how an African bird voluntarily helps humans to find beehives. There's just something kind of mythical about being led through a forest by a bird to go find honey. I mean, it's it's unmistakable. It's, it's great. Plus, you are feeling sleepy. Researchers study how to make hypnosis easier, the DNA of diving birds, and a new human species transforms our picture of evolution. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. I want to start out by talking about Hurricane Larry. Several watches have come into effect for the East Coast. Hurricane Watch specifically in effect for St. John's vicinity as well as the, as well as the Avalon Peninsula. Hurricane Larry is When Hurricane Larry slammed into Newfoundland back in September of 2021, meteorologists warned people about the powerful winds and heavy rainfall that were going to hit the island. But Larry was carrying another surprise. Those gale force winds were carrying plastic and a lot of it. We know this because a couple of days before it made landfall, scientists in Nova Scotia decided to jump at the opportunity to figure out if hurricanes had anything to do with the spread of microplastics around the world. Anna Ryan is the lead author on the study. She's a master's student of earth and environmental science at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Hello, Ms. Ryan. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, thanks for having me here. What made you suspect hurricanes could be carrying plastic pollution along with them? Well, we know that the atmosphere can carry microplastics. It's been seen before in both cities and in remote locations. So if the atmosphere is carrying plastics in normal conditions, we thought it's most likely carrying them during a hurricane too. Well, walk us through your experiment. How did you sample Hurricane Larry? We had a pretty basic sample set up. We just found a site that was relatively remote, close to the ocean, and was clear of any obstructions like buildings or tall trees. And we went out with a large glass cylinder, kind of like a vase, and secured it to the ground with wooden stakes. And we put a little bit of ultra-pure water in the bottom. And then we would just leave that for six hours. During that six hours, Anything that was falling out of the atmosphere would hopefully get deposited into that cylinder. And then when the time was up, we would empty it into a jar, rinse it out, and then set it back up for another six hours and so on for five days. Now, where in Newfoundland did you set up the experiment? We were on the east coast of Newfoundland, about 60 kilometers south of St. John's. So did you have to become a bit of a hurricane hunter to do this, to make sure that you were there at the right time? 
Yeah, we were checking all the weather predictions and we were looking at the hurricane tracker. And then it was just a matter of hoping the hurricane came our way. (laughs) And I guess you had to stay there while the hurricane passed over. What was that like? That was interesting. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was quite windy. I was worried at a couple points that the roof would collapse. It didn't. It was fine. <laughs> but it was just so deafening, the, the wind and rain. Wow. And that was a fairly weak hurricane, too. <laughs> so once the hurricane was over and you're back in Halifax with your samples, could you see anything with the naked eye when you first just looked at them? You can't see the plastics themselves because they're so small, but you can definitely see there's something there. So what we do is put all the contents of the jars, so the water and debris and whatnot, and we filter it onto a small little filter with a very small pore size. And when you look at those filters with the naked eye, there's a discoloration of the filter. You know, it'll be very dirty looking. And the more particles are on there, the dirtier it looks. So when you looked at it more closely, what did you see? So we found a lot of microplastic particles. Uh, We divided samples up by pre-hurricane, during hurricane, and then post-hurricane conditions. And in the pre- and post-hurricane conditions, we found up to 20,000 microplastic particles per square meter per day in uh, some of the samples. And then at the peak of the hurricane, we found over 100,000 microplastic particles per square meter per day were deposited. Holy smokes, from 20,000 to 100,000 particles. Yeah, it was quite the increase. Yeah, what went through your mind when you saw that? I was pretty shocked. I was like, is this right? This seems like way too much. What kind of plastics were these particles made of? So we had a real variety of plastics, more than 10 different kinds of polymers in our samples, actually, which is interesting because a lot of the times you'll find just a handful of different polymers, but because ours had so many different kinds of polymers and not an overwhelming abundance of any single polymer, that leads us to believe these plastics aren't coming from one point source, like an airport or a factory or a wastewater treatment plant or something like that that's supplying these plastics. Well, where do you think these microplastics did come from? So Hurricane Larry was kind of special because It didn't follow the trajectory we see it with a lot of North Atlantic hurricanes, you know, going up the east coast of the U.S. and then maybe hitting Canada. It actually went straight through the North Atlantic garbage patch, which is an area in the North Atlantic gyre where there's an accumulation of tons and tons of microplastic and macroplastic in the surface waters. And Hurricane Larry went straight through that, so it would have had the opportunity to pick up tons and tons of plastic particles that were right in the surface there. Wow. We hear about the big garbage patch in the Pacific, so you're saying the Atlantic has one too? Yeah, obviously the Pacific one is massive and gets talked about the most, but there is still a significant amount of plastic debris in the Atlantic Ocean, and because of the way ocean currents work, it just pushes them all into this area where it gets concentrated and then they can't really escape from there. 
So what do your findings suggest the role hurricanes play in distributing microplastics around the world? So we think that hurricanes are a very important transport mechanism for microplastics. As we saw, they can take microplastics out of the ocean and then deposit them on land to places where you might not have regular sources of microplastics. The place where we were sampling is relatively remote. You know, you're not going to have a ton of plastic pollution coming from the local area, but yet it's still receiving so much microplastic from this hurricane. And then also because of how far hurricanes could travel and how powerful and wide their storm systems are, they have the potential to pick up a lot more plastic than in fair weather conditions and transport them relatively quickly to these areas that um, wouldn't otherwise see as much plastic pollution. Well, if the hurricanes are dumping plastic from the ocean onto the land, and as you say, that land wasn't exposed to microplastics before, what are the environmental implications for the soil, for plants, for animals? Yeah, so there's still a lot of questions around the long-term implications of plastic, especially in the terrestrial environment. But we know that um, microplastic particles can transport viruses or heavy metals or harmful bacteria. And additionally, the toxic chemicals that are put into the plastic during its manufacture can actually leach out into the surrounding environment. And so if the microplastic particles are ingested, that could be really harmful for the organism that ingests them. And additionally, could also travel through the food chain then if it's getting into animals that are then eaten by humans, it might travel up to humans. Ms. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Anna Ryan is a master's student of Earth and Environmental Science at Dalhousie University. There are many examples in nature where individuals of two unrelated species cooperate for the benefit of both, what's called mutualistic behavior. For example, aphids secrete a sugary liquid that ants enjoy. In return, ants protect the aphids from predators and parasites. Tropical pitcher plants provide woolly bats with a safe place to hide, and the plants enjoy the nutritious benefit of bat feces in exchange for their hospitality. But such cooperative behavior between animals and humans is very rare. The African honey guide is a bird that is so named because of its ancient and unique relationship with various groups of hunter-gatherers. And as Dr. Brian Wood, an evolutionary anthropologist at UCLA, discovered, when those people need honey, they know who to call. Dr. Wood, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the African honey guide. What kind of a bird is it? This is a bird that is pretty common in the woodlands of East Africa, South Africa, and Central Africa. It's about the size of a large robin. And what makes it really unique is the fact that it calls out to people using a very distinct signal and leads people to trees that contain bee colonies. And who are the groups of people you studied that have this relationship with the bird? Well, I've been working with the Hadza hunter-gatherers of northern Tanzania for the last 20 years. And that's where I conduct my research in general, and that's where I conducted part of the study. 
Well, tell me about the nature of the relationship. How do they cooperate with each other? Well, it's really quite amazing. Uh, the Hadza use this bird on a daily basis to find honeybee colonies. And honey is a very important food to the Hadza. It contributes about 20% of their diet. So this is a really important relationship. And what happens is that Hadza travel through their landscape, oftentimes whistling to try to attract this bird's attention. And after this bird hears the Hadza whistle, it flies towards Hadza and then gives its own signal to indicate to Hadza honey hunters that it knows the location of a bee colony. And when Hadza hear this bird's chattering, uh, they get really excited and happy because they know that honey is on the way. And so they follow the bird and they could travel anywhere from, oh, 100 yards to up to maybe half a mile. And the bird sits quietly while the Hadza honey hunter climbs a tree has a little bit of a battle with a bee colony, uh, uses smoke to subdue those bees, and with an ax opens up the bee colony. And then uh, it's wonderful because the Hadza get something great from the relationship. They get the valuable honey, and the bird gets a waste product that's generated from all this, which is the beeswax. And so after this tree has been harvested, typically there'll be little bits of beeswax lying around uh, that that bird will then, after the honey hunter has done his work, will uh, fly around and collect and oftentimes flies off with a, uh, a large piece of uh, beeswax, which it'll carry off and, you know, eat. And this is also a very important food for the bird. Wow. And, and these are wild birds that you're talking about here. The, the, the people whistle, the wild bird comes in, the wild bird leads them to the honey. Absolutely. That's one of the things that makes this relationship so special is that these are wild birds. The Hadza don't interfere at all in their reproduction. They don't capture them. They don't train them. This is a relationship that just spontaneously has arisen um, and is maintained by, you know, this long-term relationship between people and the bird. Now, are the Hadza the only people that do this? We know that it is observed all across East Africa uh, the first real scientific study of this work uh, was done in northern Kenya, and that's where I first read about it. And uh, Claire Spottiswood, who is my co-author on this study, she works in northern Mozambique with uh, the Yao people. And uh, there's many other cultures in, all across East Africa that are uh, engaging in this amazing relationship with the honey guy. Now, you mentioned that the people have a special whistle that they use to attract the bird. Does everyone use the same whistle? The Hadza use a characteristic whistle that has melodies and phrases that is a, a locally consistent set of, of, of a repertoire of whistles. But these, these signals that are used to attract the honey guide vary across cultures. So in northern Mozambique, where Claire Spottiswood uh, does her research, they use a completely different kind of signal. It's a, it's a guttural sound. And um, there's, there's a whole variety of different sounds that we know honey hunters in different parts of Africa use to attract this bird.
So how do you think this relationship between the people and the birds came about, where the, the birds know the people are going to go looking for honey and the people know that the birds are going to lead them to the honey? We know that it's maintained through learning. That's what our study demonstrates, is that birds uh, respond much more readily to these local signals. They're two or three times uh, more likely to respond to signals from the local honey hunter community than they are to respond to played back examples of foreign honey hunter signals. So we know the relationship is today maintained by some learning on the bird's part. If we think about it more deeply in time about how this relationship evolved, if you were to go back hundreds or hundreds of thousands or even millions of years ago in East Africa, what you'd see were early hominin ancestors foraging for honey, uh, generating waste products that were very valuable to the honey guide. And so I think probably it originally evolved as a kind of commensal relationship where these birds were simply scavenging from the waste products that were being generated by early honey hunters. And I think it's from that more simple relationship that likely this mutualistic relationship uh, evolved where honey guides weren't just scavenging from uh, earlier honey hunters, but then took this active guiding role, you know, leading honey hunters from place to place. What was it like for you to witness this behavior? Well, it was fantastic. Um, it still is today. I mean, I'm a scientist and I want to drill down and get all the quantitative data I can to try to document this relationship. But, you know, there, there's just something kind of mythical about being led through a forest by a bird to go find honey. I mean, it's, it's unmistakable. It's, it's great. And to any extent that our research can be used to preserve those rights of honey hunters to acquire these traditional resources and to maintain this partnership with a bird, I think would be a very good outcome from this research. Dr. Wood, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. Dr. Brian Wood is an evolutionary anthropologist at the University of California, Los Angeles. I am in your power. Boss me around. When I snap my fingers, you will transform into a famous historian. Look at me. I'm a famous historian. Out of my way. In pop culture, hypnosis is often treated like a novelty act used for making someone do silly tricks at the snap of a finger. But in medical settings, hypnosis has long been a valuable treatment method used for things like relief from chronic pain, quitting smoking, or alleviating anxiety. But one reason it's not used to help people more often is that susceptibility to hypnosis can vary widely. Studies show that while up to 15% of people can easily get into a hypnotic state, up to 20% can't experience it at all, even if they really want to. The rest of us fall somewhere in the middle. But now new research has shown for the first time a way to increase someone's hypnotizability. Dr. Afik Farman led the study. He's a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford Medicine. Dr. Farman, welcome to our program. Thank you so much. Why are you interested in studying hypnosis? So I think the clip you shared, Homer Simpson, is, is kind of how most people get introduced to hypnosis through entertainment or a show. And naturally, that would raise doubts. It did for me. But for the first time, the first time I saw it in practice in clinical work, 
it really changed how I view what hypnosis is and what it can do for people. So how effective is hypnosis in, in treating things like chronic pain? Yeah, so hypnosis is a very effective for a wide variety of psychophysiological symptoms, which is a, a term that we use to describe both psychological or bodily symptoms. Specifically pain, most of the evidence that we have shows that it is effective for pain, it is effective for chronic pain or acute pain, but it is also effective for anxiety and depression and other manifestations of psychological problems. So what do we know about how hypnosis works in the brain? So that's what we're working on. Uh, we don't fully understand the how. So we have a lot of evidence shows that it does help people. There are different approaches to studying how hypnosis works in the brain. But the way we understand it is that we have different systems in the brain that manage our conscious experience, our experience of our world, the things we feel, the things we, we, we think uh, or even sense. And what they do is they take information from our beliefs and our memories and how we understand the world and they help us edit or interpret what our senses tell us. In hypnosis, really what we try to do is to use the help of those systems to adjust the experience a little bit. And that's, for example, why it's so effective for pain, because we're not taking away what's causing the pain. We're helping the person experience less pain, even though it's present. We can either make a person feel less pain, or we can help a person be less bothered by it. Well, why are some people more susceptible to hypnosis than others? There are a lot of factors that play into how a person's response to hypnosis. Some of them are societal and environmental, but other factors are genetic or neural in terms of neurocognitive factors. And that's really where our research focuses on. Um, we're trying to understand where in the brain and how the brain facilitate hypnosis, which will allow us eventually to understand how people that respond very well do that and whether we can borrow that from them and apply it for people that don't benefit so much from it. Well, take me through your study. What did you do to try to enhance someone's ability to be hypnotized? So we followed previous studies from Dr. Spiegel's lab at Stanford School of Medicine, where he and his team identified a specific pathway in the brain, a connection between two brain regions that in previous research have been shown to be uh, relevant for hypnosis. And what we were trying to do is using a non-invasive approach to change how the brain works. It is essentially a magnetic coil that sits outside of the head and using change in changes in magnetic fields, it shifts or alters or what we call modulate how the brain works. Again, without non-invasive, without surgery, without anything like that. And what we asked is, could we use that tool to simulate in people who are not highly hypnotizable, how their brain would act and function as if they were highly hypnotizable? So how long did you stimulate the brain? So our question was a really basic question. Can it be done? And in order to answer such a basic question, we decided to choose a very short stimulation, 92 seconds. 
Wow. How many people were in the study? We recruited 80 people with fibromyalgia, and then we split them randomly in half. 40 people received the new intervention that we designed, and 40 people received sham stimulation. And what we found is that only the group that received real stimulation had a significant increase in their hypnotizability. Wow. How long did this effect last? So the effect lasted for about an hour, and that's expected when we're thinking about turning this approach to a more clinically applicable intervention. We imagine it as people come in to see their psychologists or psychiatrists, and right before they go into their therapy session, we do a quick stimulation, and hopefully that will increase the effectiveness of the treatment. So what does it mean that you were able to change hypnotizability? Now that we know that it can be done, our next step is to test it in a clinical setting. So we're going to have another, we're already working on it, another study where we're actually going to provide clinical hypnosis for a specific symptom and test whether we can adjust and tweak the stimulation protocol to actually improve the effects of that hypnosis treatment. Just one last thing. Based on the results of your experiment, how do you think this could change the perception of hypnosis as more than just a party trick? That's a fantastic question. So we know from a recent survey that people who were initially exposed to hypnosis through non-scientific sources tend to have more negative beliefs about hypnosis. And people that have more negative beliefs about hypnosis first are less likely to seek it as a treatment even if it's a great fit for what they're experiencing. Um, and also, they, it actually might dampen some of the benefits that they, they, they have through it. So part of the, the efforts in our research is not just to find and discover new things about hypnosis and how it works in the brain, but also to communicate it to the general public, because we truly believe that everyone has the right to know that hypnosis for the past several decades has been rigorously studied scientifically in top universities in the world. And, you know, at the very least, I hope it will spark interest in people's minds. Dr. Farman, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Afik Farman is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, a remarkable discovery of fossils of a human relative in Africa may reshape our understanding of hominid evolution. We humans have created a kind of mythology around ourselves to tell a story of why humans are unique and different. What I think we're learning with Naledi is that that's not a true story.
The best-known species of kingfishers are probably the birds who dive headlong into water to catch their prey. And they have an obvious adaptation for this, a slick, pointed beak that cuts into the water. In fact, the beaks are so optimally developed that they inspired the design of the fastest train in the world, the Japanese Shinkansen. Dr. Chad Eliason has studied how their beaks allow the birds to effectively plunge into the water without breaking their necks, but it turns out the beaks are only part of the story. Recently, his team explored the bird's DNA to understand the rest of the kingfisher's story. Dr. Eliason is an evolutionary biologist and senior research scientist at Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History. Hello, Dr. Eliason. Welcome to our program. Hi there. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me what these plunge-diving kingfisher birds look like. Well, they are pretty cool-looking, kind of top-heavy, really big beaks. Half of the body is their head, and the half is their kind of short, stubby tails and wings. They're not all like that, though. There are some that have really long tails, almost like a flag-like tail, and it turns out that's one of the species that doesn't dive into water. So tell me about a dive. Like, How high off the water are they when they come down, and how fast are they going when they hit the water? Yeah, some of them can be kind of hovering, almost like a hummingbird, maybe five meters or so off the water, and uh, once they see a fish plunge down at maybe 20, 25 miles per hour, I'd have to do the conversion there. <laughs> But yeah, and, and some of them will be a lot closer. So there's you know, even variation in that. Just That's what excites me about evolutionary biology is that there's variation and explaining it is what really gets me excited. So some of them are only a meter or, or less off the water and they don't dive down as far, but some of them are totally submerged and go down to the bottom of a river, get a fish and return to the surface. <laughs> well, well, having done a little bit of high diving myself, I, I know how hard the water can feel if you don't hit it just right. <laughs> and so what physically enables the kingfishers to withstand that kind of impact with the water? Yeah, what we found when we looked at their beaks was that the ones that dive into water, dive head first and plunge dive, they have a dagger-like beak. Whereas the ones that are eating bugs and things like that have more of a, almost like a, I don't want to say a duck-shaped beak, but more of a spatula, more of a flattened beak, or there's a species that eats worms that has a really blunt kind of like a pyramid-shaped kind of beak. Uh, but the ones that dive into water have these changes to these dagger-like form of the beak that kind of splits right through the water and reduces the drag that they feel as they hit the water and the impact. Now, you didn't just look at the structure of their bodies, though. How did you dig into their DNA to figure out how they can dive like that? Yeah, so the work with the beaks uh, was kind of the first step. And then we were looking at their brains and we got really excited and said, you know, we have all this tissue that's, you know, some of that was collected back in the, I want to say, 90s. Uh, some of these birds and some DNA was collected and we just had it sitting in these freezers and you know, we really wanted to kind of look and see what's happening at the level of the genes, like what genes are changing. Uh, you know, are they things that we'd expect? Are they changes in beak genes or changes in brain genes or maybe changes in feather color because there's a lot of color variation? We really didn't know, but we had a, an idea that we might find something related to this kind of specialized diet and uh, way of feeding. Now, were you comparing the birds that dive compared to the ones that don't dive? Yes, that's correct. So we were interested in looking at the ones that dive and don't. And that's where it gets really exciting because it turns out that maybe only 25, 30% of the species out of 100, 
20 or so kingfishers across the world, only, you know, a handful of them actually plunge dive into water, even though they're called kingfishers. A lot of them just eat insects or worms, other things. Hmm. So what kind of genetic differences did you see among the divers? We kind of did a scan across thousands and thousands of genes all across the genome. So, you know, you could think of a a billion letters all kind of side by side. We kind of had to scan through these for these 30 different species uh, using fancy computers. And we kind of sifted through thousands of genes and we came up with a handful of 90 or so of them. Uh, Some of them are still mysteries to us, but... You know, some of them were related to dietary variation. You know, you have a high fatty acid content in these fish, and it it could be that these genes are involved in being able to handle that kind of diet. And there was some changes in genes related to kind of brain shape. Some of them were related to formation of these proteins inside of neurons, known as tau proteins as well. So... Well, yeah. I mean, we hear about tau proteins involved in concussions and Alzheimer's disease. So how would these proteins help the birds deal with the dive? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing that's interesting about this, you know, a little bit of tau protein is good. So, I mean, they stabilize the nerve cells. They're produced inside of these nerve cells. When when you have a buildup of too much of it, then you can have kind of formation of these little clumps or these tangles, as they're called. And those are thought to disrupt the ability of these neurons to kind of communicate within the cell and with each other. But the buildup of these proteins can be a result of either changes in the actual DNA code, which is what we found, but it could also be things like just producing too much of it. Or sometimes after a protein is formed, molecules are kind of tacked onto it inside of the cell and that can really change their function. And that we can't really tell from what we did. So that's kind of where the next steps would be going to figure out the biology of, of what's going on and what are these kingfishers doing differently and how do these consistent changes we see, these convergent changes, how do they help them to kind of mitigate these forces as they're smashing their heads into water? Wow, so you got a double-edged sword here. On one case, if you get a buildup of the tau proteins, they might be helping the bird to withstand the forces of an impact, but too much can lead to Alzheimer's disease and problems. Yeah, yeah, and other problems. And I think that's just something that we maybe don't even know too well in a lot of bird species. There was a study in 2018 that was kind of the first one of its kind looking inside of woodpecker brains. They discovered this buildup of tau, these accumulations of tangles, but, you know, we still don't really know how closely it resembles what we see in humans. And there's still so many questions and so many exciting angles to be explored with these kind of bird systems. Mm -hmm. So what do your findings suggest to you about how behavior can influence genetic evolution? Yeah, what I like to think happens is that, you know, one of these birds sometime in deep history, at some point there had to have been a kingfisher, an individual or a little baby or something that decided I'm going to dive into water. And once that happens, then you have these kind of downstream, like things that go along for the ride, whether it's kind of the shape and how the birds look or kind of the genes Uh, And I think that's kind of what we're seeing here is, yeah, that once you have these behavioral changes, you you have these genetic changes as well. As the saying goes, nature always finds a way. Yep. (laughs) That's a good way to put it. (laughs) Dr. Eliason, thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank you very much. Dr. Chad Eliason is an evolutionary biologist and senior research scientist at Chicago's Field Museum of Natural History. We 
knew something weird was going on from the first week. If you find one bone fragment or one tooth, that's a huge thing. Now we have this discovery of 1,500 individual bone fragments. And they're not human. That is a clip from a new Netflix documentary about a spectacular new discovery. The rising star cave system, located about an hour's drive from Johannesburg, South Africa, contains the remains of an entirely new primitive hominid species. We named it Homo naledi, placing it in the genus Homo, the same genus as humans are in. It's the find of a lifetime, and it's rewriting the story of human ancestry. Dr. Lee Berger, a renowned paleoanthropologist and National Geographic explorer-in-residence, has written a book about the find. It's called Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. Hello, Dr. Berger. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Well, thank you, and hello from South Africa. I've, I've just been out in the field at the <laughs> caves, just come in to talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you for talking to us from the other side of the world. Describe the Rising Star cave system where you found these bones. What's it like? It's not your typical cave, probably not the one your listeners have in mind. It's not a big open spaces. These are networks of incredibly tiny and tight passages that almost labyrinth-like that extend sort of from the surface down to 40 or 50 meters before they hit the water table. Four and a half kilometers of cave system, and it's interrupted periodically by small to medium-sized chambers. And it's in these chambers, often hundreds of meters back from where we can access these caves that we're finding these remains of Homo naledi, these non-human, small-brained, ancient human relatives that appear to be burying their dead very deliberately and in a ritual-like fashion back in these deep chambers throughout the system. Well, first of all, how did you find the fossils? So the fossils were found by accident deliberately, and that's not an oxymoron. <laughs> uh, I had sent out amateur cavers, uh, Steve Tucker, Rick Hunter, to use a map I had created almost a decade before in my search for ancient hominids that led to the discovery of a, another species called Australopithecus sediba. And they went into this cave system as part of that exploration exercise. A very well-known system, but on a night in September of 2013, they went off the map. They went off of the known routes. They found a thing we now call the Chute Labyrinth, an incredibly narrow, down to 17 and a half centimeters, 12 meter vertical passage that enters this remote cave system. There they saw bones, didn't know what they were, brought me these images, and I immediately recognized they had found something extraordinary. No one, no scientist had ever seen images like this before. Well, what stood out to you when you first saw these bones? Oh, I instantly knew they were primitive. That is, the dentition was not shaped like a human. It was had larger premolars. The, the molar proportions were different than ours. And so from the first moment, I knew that they were something that shouldn't be in the way I was seeing them. They shouldn't be just laying on the floor. Normally in South Africa, fossils like that are embedded in concrete-like matrix. It takes thousands of hours to prepare them. This looked like something truly ancient, but just lying on the floor of this 
really remote chamber. And, and when they described the situation, uh, I realized we were going to have to launch a pretty extraordinary expedition, which became known as the Rising Star Expedition. I had six incredible female scientists who led the work, who could actually mm -hmm. fit into this space. Mm -hmm. And that led to the discovery of the largest assemblage of ancient human relatives ever discovered in history, that we controversially said when we announced in 2015, we're deliberately disposing of the dead. And why that was controversial is they're not humans. They have the brain the size of a chimpanzee. Okay, so yeah, brains the size of a chimpanzee. You talked about their teeth. How complete were the skeletons that you found? Oh, some of them are incredibly complete. You know, they're sort of 60, 70, 80 percent complete. Others are just fragments. As the work would go on, we would find them in these really odd situations. Uh, you would see these articulated hands, articulated feet. What we didn't recognize at first was what we weren't expecting. The remains were in holes in the ground that were dug. They'd been placed there and then buried with the dirt from those holes. You might obviously call that a grave. We didn't recognize it because we kind of talked ourselves out of that being possible with something that wasn't human. That's mm -hmm. a burial of the dead. These sort of ritual behaviors are thought to be mm -hmm. really the domain of being human, almost part of what identifies us. So it took us a while to recognize that. In 2018, we recognized the first burials, and that's really where the story kind of takes off in this book, that mm -hmm. the sort of second part of this adventure where we start recognizing burials, we start realizing that we're dealing with maybe mm -hmm. the first contact of humans with a non-human species, albeit an extinct one, mm -hmm. that was performing ritual practices we thought were unique to humans. And, of course, then later the discovery of meaning-making symbols. Okay. Before we get to their lifestyles, <laughs> uh, I'm still trying to get a sense of what they actually look like. We have the famous fossil Lucy that was found uh, where up in Ethiopia, north of there. So how do these creatures compare to, say, that one? So if you've got an idea of Lucy in your mind, sort of a an individual maybe just over a meter tall with a tiny brain, kind of an ape-like proportions or close to ape-like proportions, but walking on two legs. That's kind of your image, maybe covered in fur or something like that. Naledi is a little bit like that and a lot different than that. Naledi are actually quite tall. They're running in at about four foot eight to five foot two inches tall. That's within human size, but sitting on top of that tall, slender body is this very ape-sized head, a head very similar in size to Lucy, and shoulders that are very ape-like, but they become more and more human-like as you move down towards the hands and feet. At a great distance, maybe a couple hundred meters, you think, oh, there's a human coming towards me. As they walk closer to you, as they get within sort of 50 meters, 25 meters, you would not mistake them for a human. They would be proportioned completely unlike us, sharing really the only similarity of walking on two legs. So where then do Naledi fit into the human evolutionary tree? We have no idea. <laughs> I know that's a terrible answer from a scientist. I'm supposed to wax along about how where they fit, but Naledi looks like it should belong at a place kind of with species like Homo habilis, some of the very earliest members of our genus, a very primitive Homo erectus, and that would have typically placed them at about two, two and a half million years. What was immensely surprising about Naledi 
is that when we eventually got good dates, both directly on the fossils and on the site, they turned out to be around 250,000 years old, actually around 230 to 330,000 years ago. That's within the range of time that we thought only modern humans existed in Africa. So until that moment, we thought we were alone, that our critical modern behaviors were arising in Africa, and now we've dropped this other thing, another species, very not like us in, in many ways, right into the middle of that critical time period. Wow. So they were much more recent than Lucy, because Lucy was millions of years ago. You're saying... Lucy's 2.8 to 3 million years. Her species yeah. goes back to, say, 3.5 million years. And the Letty carries a brain size in that range, but it exists in a time where it should and that's, I think, been one of the, the most striking things about this discovery. It's made us sort of get rid of those sacred cows of the idea of this sort of march of time and march of progress in human evolution. So they were around at the same time as early Homo sapiens, our species. That's right. That's right. And I think that was the first thing that was most surprising to everyone. And then, of course, as we continued the research and continue to study both the fossils themselves, but more importantly, the situation they were in, they began challenging our ideas of when critical events like burial of the dead, like ritualized behaviors, perhaps meaning-making symbols, the creation of things that some people might call art, although we're very careful not mm -hmm. to say that, they challenged the sort of origin stories that we thought we had all figured out. Well, tell me more about the evidence that you found in the cave that you think they deliberately buried their dead. So back in 2015, when we announced it, we announced this new species. We had to explain why only the remains of Homo naledi were in these deep, deep underground systems. And so, again, very controversially, we said at that time, we believed that they were ritually disposing of their dead. We were very careful not to use the word burial. Burial implies a much, much more critical sort of advanced behavior that most archaeologists would tie only to large brain modern humans. Then in 2018, we found these holes dug into the ground with bodies flexed in them in a fetal position of Naledi deep in these systems. And we began to realize that these were what you would call you know, human graves. That was astounding. That led to a lot of research around describing these various graves as we found them in different locations throughout the system. And then in July of 2022, that's when I actually entered the system and recognized that there were engravings and meaning-making symbols carved into the walls above these graves that had been done multiple times over perhaps hundreds, if not thousands of years in a place where there's no evidence that humans have ever been. Now, that was staggering mm -hmm. because that begins to get into an idea that this non-human species is behaving like humans. And I think What's really incredible, Bob, is that humans aren't doing that sophisticated behavior at the same time. Wow. They won't do it for another 100 to 150,000 years. Wow. So this predates us, but likely has nothing to do with those behaviors in us that we use today to identify ourselves. So what does it say then about Naledi's mental capacities? If they were intentionally burying their dead, they were creating what looks like art, or they were scratching on the walls anyway, and yet they had brains the size of chimpanzees. I think it says at first that 
we humans have created a kind of mythology around ourselves. We have spent thousands and thousands of years trying to justify human exceptionalism, to tell a story of why humans are unique and different. Almost every religious text begins with an origin story that tries to explain why we are different and often superior to animals. What I think we're learning with Naledi is that that's not a true story that Naledi was capable of behaving in a way very nearly, if not as complex as we do today, doing it with a very small brain. And again, probably not a surprise in hindsight. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. You know, when we look at animal cultures, animal behaviors, where we're seeing cetaceans clearly have cultures now. We know chimpanzees and gorillas have culture. Elephants have culture. Corvids, crows have culture. I think we simply had got caught up in this idea of human exceptionalism and had dehumanized these relatives that are closer to us. And thus it mistold a story. Mm -hmm. And so what it says about us is we're not as exceptional as we used to be a few years ago. What was the experience like for you when you actually went down through this cave system to the inner chamber, this burial chamber? It was, in short, the most horrible, awful, (laughs) terrible, and wonderful experience I've ever done. (laughs) I had spent nine years watching 46 scientists and explorers who could make it into these this cave system, get into that space. There were questions that remained unanswered that I thought maybe I was one of the few people who had all this knowledge in my head to actually test. I, I lost a whole lot of weight, 25 kilograms, to make an attempt in there to become the 47th human to get in there. It was as awful and dangerous as I had described to the external world. But then when I got in there and realized that we had missed things, These symbols were carved on the wall that the space had been manipulated. It was magical. It was moving and and deeply affected me. I'm still deeply affected and still processing some of the sort of knowledge and events that occurred there. But glad I went. Almost died getting out. But I can assure you before you ask the question, I'm not going back in. (laughs) What did these engravings or symbols look like? So most of them are very geometric in form. They're shapes you would be familiar with. They're crosses, upside down, right side up, triangles, squares. There are ladder-like shapes. There are X's. There are equal sides. There are hashtags, not not the one from the organization formerly known as Twitter, but (laughs) they look like hashtags. But we don't know what this non-human brain was using them for. But they are shapes that are shared with other early species, the earliest Neanderthal art looks like this. The earliest human art looks like this. And they are remarkably shared. We're investigating that type of meaning and potential use now. Well, you had to lose weight to get in there. And even then, you just barely squeezed through. So what perspective did that give you on how Homo naledi made it down there? The answer is that they would have had an easier time doing it. Their heads are not as big. That's a big deal. You know, your head size is one of those immovable numbers on our body. Their chests were smaller. They would have been more powerful uh, proportion to body weight. So they would have moved through the space differently. But the space still was very, very difficult. And I think they actually selected it for that difficulty because there are no other animals in there. So likely, kind of in the way that humans choose spaces that are hard to access to perform the rituals related to 
our loved ones' deaths and the deaths of other humans, I think that they were probably accessing a space that was deliberately hard to get to. Well, you say in your book that it was obvious that the bodies were not just tossed down there. They were laid there. Well, they went into these spaces. They dug holes into the ground. They placed the bodies in them, and then they used the dirt from that digging to cover those bodies. That is a very sophisticated ritual practice. It means that you have deep knowledge about not only the concept of death, but the permanence of death. And, you know, this is kind of like our first contact for science, where we're, we're still processing what that means. But it, it may also have implication that you have meaning and ritual in death and perhaps afterlife. I mean, there is a tool-shaped rock that's actually in the hand of a dead Naledi child that's buried in one of these graves. And as my colleague from Princeton, uh, Augustine Fuentes, says, you know, why do you put a tool in the hands of a dead individual if you don't intend for them to use them? So, you know, it's early days, but we may be seeing a level of complexity that we used to reserve really only for observing ourselves. So you raise an interesting question towards the end of your book that if Homo naledi was around at the same time as Homo sapiens and they had what looks like burial, they had what looks like some kind of art, they had stone tools, is it possible that Homo sapiens learned those from naledi? We have to consider, I think, every possibility. Either we are looking at the origins of those behaviors and things in another species and we adopted them, we stole them, we gained them through introgression, that's a fancy word for having sex with them and inherited the genes, or, and you know, this is kind of, I hope, the most interesting one, it developed independently, it has nothing to do with us. And if it did, it could have happened and may have happened multiple times in the past. You know what the neat thing about this is? And this is news that's going to be coming out in the not distant future because we've had success with molecular material. I think that's a fairly poorly kept secret. And we will understand the relationship, if any, of Naledi with us and maybe have clues to those sort of three major possibilities of that origin story of this behavior in Naledi and perhaps in us. Dr. Berger, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Dr. Lee Berger is a paleoanthropologist, National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence, and author of the new book called Cave of Bones, a true story of discovery, adventure, and human origins. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca. Or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks, where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Amanda Buckowitz, Sonia Biting, and Mark Crawley. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.